Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Little known fact, she's the most produced female playwright in America. She's also a screenwriter, a director, a television writer, a novelist, and she's on my podcast. Welcome, Teresa Rebeck. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Teresa Rebeck. Teresa is a prolific and wildly produced playwright. Her work on Broadway includes Bernard Hamlet, Dead Accounts, Seminar, Mauritius, and currently, I need that. Some of her other notable plays include Dig, Madhouse, Seer, Downstairs, The Scene, The Family of Man, Spike Heels, Bad Dates, The Understudy, View of the Dome, What We're Up Against, and Omnium Gatherum. Some of her major film and TV credits include Trouble, Smash, the female spy thriller 355, and so many more. She's written at least three novels, maybe more. She'll fill me in about that. She is the most produced female playwright in America, maybe the globe. I am so glad to have my dear old friend, Teresa Rebeck on the podcast and to see you in person after so long. It's just making my heart so happy. Hello, my friend. Hi, 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 Lana, hi. Hi. It's been a long time. So I know. Great to see you. It's so great to see you. I was thinking today that the the first memory I have of meeting you is I was doing Machinal at Naked Angels, directed by Michael Greif. Your husband, your sweet husband, was our stage manager, and you were our dramaturg at the okay. time. Is that is that how you I, remember yeah, I, it? I, that's yes. I mean, I didn't really have much to do as a dramaturg. I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I was doing there. But having said that, I was uh, you know I was glad to always come in and see everybody. It was a beautiful production. It was really just beautiful. Well, Sophie Treadwell's play was a well-made play that held up, but it was my first production at Naked Angels. It really was, you know, Michael Greif bringing me along from the Berkshire Theater Festival where I'd met him originally. Um, and, And that became that moment of meeting you and Jess by the way were you married at that time already or were you dating 
in like 1989. I think that was right. That was right before we got married. So it was right on the, I, I, I think I was not married when you did it at Naked Angels. And then I was married when you did it. When we did it at the, when, oh, when the production was at the public. So first of all, for me, it was just so cool seeing like a theater couple um, and seeing that it could work. And all these years later, it's still working and children and, and fame have um, lavished themselves on you. And so there are so many things I could talk to you about, but the reason we are here today specifically um, is because the the good people who are producing I Need That, um, the Roundabout Theater Company uh, and others. And I talked about having you on to talk about this play. And I'm sure our our conversation will include other things as well, but I'd love to start with it because I just saw it. It's fresh in my mind. Um, And so I wonder if you could just take us through how it is that Danny DeVito and his daughter, Lucy DeVito, and Ray Anthony Thomas, who I've loved since I saw him do something at the Atlantic Theater Company many moons ago, all are on stage together in this beautifully made play. Um, well, you know, uh, it actually uh, began, I called Moritz uh, von Stuttnagel, who is a director who I work with a lot. Um, and in the middle of the pandemic, it was the middle of the pandemic, and I had been thinking about what if we, we had to do something, you know, and so what could we work on? And I, it felt like, you know, it needed to be small. It, you know, it needed to be one set, you know, that everyone was so worried about how to produce theater at all when we came out of this. So we were talking about, about those things. And I had been thinking about hoarders, not hoarders so much as clutter. You should see my desk, you know, I have so much stuff and uh, just little things. And my husband has really pristine working space that's his desk behind me and uh so and we're all constantly feeling like we have to throw things away there's too much stuff here it's an ongoing uh feeling of concern and um so i had been uh, and at the same time my parents uh had been and still are they're they're very frail um and there's a lot of things they have to give up as they um, as their lives become smaller. Uh, and so all of these things were on my mind. And then Moritz said to me, what do you think of Danny DeVito? And cause he knew Danny and I said, so I really had not written a word. Um, then I said, I'm obsessed with Danny. I'm obsessed with Danny DeVito. Um, and, uh, so we, he said he and his daughter are looking for something to do together. And so we got on the phone with them and I, you know, we kind of talked about this idea and, um, uh, and then I uh, wrote a draft and, you know, Danny, Danny has uh, so many, and he is a font of information about absolutely everything. Um, and so it was fun listening to him and learning from him about things that he had, was sort of obsessed with and all the ideas kind of came together. And then I, I went off and wrote a draft and we talked about it. And then I wrote another draft and then we did a reading to each other. You know, it was sort of like that. And then at some point, still during the pandemic, uh, Todd Hames, the late great Todd Hames, called Danny and asked him if he would want to do something there when the pandemic had eased up on us. And uh, Danny said he was working on this play with me, and I had I, and I had also worked at the roundabout, so there was a 
sort of synchronicity there. Um, and we read it to Todd and he said, absolutely, I want to do it. And that, uh, you know, it was very, uh, and then we did it. You know, there was one point during just like a couple of weeks ago when Lucy looked at me and said, I can't believe the plan, you know, we're all we keep going, the plan worked. You know, there was this kind of uh, amazement that the plan has been working and now it continues to work. It's lovely, rare, very rare. And like, it's great. It is so fun. It's so satisfying. It's moving. Everybody's good. Um, right. You know, oh, you yeah. never know. And then Ray, we found Ray. We were like, you know, somebody said, well, you know, some, and maybe Moritz did that. And then it was like, once Ray showed up, we all went, it has to be Ray from it now on. It has to be Ray. It, it really should be always Ray. Yeah. Um, I would imagine, I mean, we all get inspired by people and ideas but how often or, or or like as you're writing like wouldn't it be amazing if Alan Rickman did this or Janet McTeer I mean we have fantasies but right. how often have you written a play for a specific voice while you're writing it um uh, this the the other time I did it I did it one other time uh, when I wrote Bad Dates for Julie White um that's I could not never have done it without her. And I and it was her, you know. Yeah. I and I had spent we we had done so many shows together. It was it was uh easy to think about doing that. And this, of course, because Danny's voice is so strong. Uh, but it's not something you try, you know, every now and then I go, I'm not gonna do that again. You know, you just uh it's really it's very challenging in a lot of ways. But so that, in the in this different. case, different, you know? I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. because uh, it's demanding your muse work in a very constrained way, which is not how you usually write. That's right. You're 100% right. And the, But the other thing is, every now and then, there's a moment when I think Shakespeare did this, you know, or Moliere did this, you know, just wrote, they wrote on their companies. And uh, that that makes me feel like it's a like mighty task, you know. It's part. It's something that we don't do as much, but you know the greats were doing it, so uh, you want to give it a go. Obviously. You are in good company with those two, among others, uh, Moliere and Shakespeare and Rebeck. I think that is a very fair roster. Uh -huh. um, I'm about to ask you such a basic writer question, but I don't care. I'm going to ask it because. I know that in some ways everyone's process is similar and yet everyone's process is completely different if they are art artists. Um, what is it that tells you, I mean, you must have a million ideas a day. How do you know what to follow through on? Like that idea is good. Why do you stay with something? Um, Cause it's amusing. Uh, I, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's you know, something you're curious about. Uh, and then at some point it really does turn into six characters in search of an author where you go, well, you've got to finish it because otherwise they're just out there unfinished. They have a very powerful reality to some part of me, my characters. And so and then I finish it. And then I'm like, well, someone come read this to me because I want to know if I, you know, it's very, and then I, my friends come and read it to me and then we have some wine 
and uh, and then at some point I'll send it to my agent, and then she'll get you know it's just meanders around. I, I, trust me, no one's out there waiting for a whole bunch of new plays, uh, right. but they should be. They should right. be. <laughs> well, you have you know you have written for film and television too, it in between and novels. Um, you you have said in you know in other interviews your characters talk to you and that's something I hear a lot but can you explain to me like if I had a, a camera inside your head what what does that mean oh I know the answer to this question uh it's like uh it's like there's a little movie going on in your head swear to god and there, it's a movie you've never seen and you just listen to them and then you keep writing it down and uh I mean and then somehow what I'm writing informs, you know, because as as you're writing, as I'm writing, um, I shape it somewhat, but I, I it usually doesn't go very far unless they actually start talking to each other. Um, and I, when I'm really in trouble, I say to Jess, I don't know what's going on. They won't talk to each other. And he just looks at me uh, like, well, you could go, because it's a bad sign. If they don't talk to each other, then something's probably wrong in the setup that that part was my job. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how it works. And you know who else this happened to? Dickens. Charles Dickens used to talk about them. Can you imagine having that many people wander around in your head? No, I cannot. I mean, I know also I remember you were like an expert in Victorian novels. Like, like you love literature so deeply and know so much about literature so that alone must just open you up to so many different worlds and styles and not beholden to one type yes that's true that's actually that's it has really uh you know you think i i think a lot about what other people did and there's a couple places in a few places where i go well i'm just gonna try this thing that moliere did moliere like in one in one play moliere did this thing where pretty often where two people are talking to each other in front of the third person, and they're actually communicating what they want to communicate to each other without cluing in the third person in any way, really. The third person has no idea what they're actually talking about. And the and I so I did this. It took forever. It's really hard. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to try that again. And but did it rhyme great. also? No, it didn't rhyme. It didn't even rhyme, and I thought it was hard. And uh, But I did, I thought... Moliere did this all the time. He didn't just do it once. You know, as right. soon as I describe it to you, you know you've seen it a bunch of times. Yeah. And I just think it's really hard. But and then there's a couple of other there's some structural things I've borrowed from Shakespeare, you know, where um, you know, and I think that that's a really vital uh way to work. Um, you know, that we that we borrow from each other, we lean on each other, we're in conversation. You know, you're we're just in conversation with everybody who came before us. So the more the more you read, the more conversations you can have, I think is one way to think about it. But now that, you know, you've done the thing that some writers don't like to do and then many writers do want, but nobody lets them, which is direct your own plays. Now that you have done that and been allowed to be in the room the whole time. I always find it so painful when the writer's there at the first read through and then the writer has to go away and then they come back as an empath. I'm just like, 
I, I mean, maybe. Crazy. I know. Uh, that's actually why I started directing because I was like, it is crazy that I live with these people for years, usually, yeah. you know, and doing a, a rewrite, going in, casting a reading, nobody gets paid anything, you know, and, uh, and then when, after all that work, we wind up in a rehearsal room and I'm expected either to go away or sit there nicely until someone asks me a question. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And also, I have found that actors often are very supportive of the idea. Maybe they're just being nice to me, but they really like working directly with a playwright slash director because the, the conversation becomes sort of nuanced, but like you don't go down as many false alleyways, you know, or you could, I don't know. I, I just think it's, it's more efficient. And uh, and everyone can get to work. It's it's intense. I will say that it's pretty intense. But Where do you think that tradition started? I don't know. Moliere Moliere did what I'm doing. Shakespeare did what I'm doing. Um, and I don't know. I think there was a, a you know there was a moment in the because it used to be that I think it happened around the 19th century, end of the 19th century. Um, I don't know. I but there was one point, not uh, you know, several years ago when I started doing this, and a couple, you know, I had, um, the, as I said, I had these amazing mentors who uh, really had their hands at my back, you know, like Greg Boyd at the Alley uh, before that whole thing blew up. You know, he's a complicated guy, and it was amazing that he said to me, "You should be directing. I want you to do all my sons with my company." That was. A, incredible moment those are great actors there and then sandy robbins at uh the rep company in delaware which is also a beautiful company actors he had me direct several things and then dina janice up at dorset started having me direct several things and then i had the opportunity to work with uh, the great mark pleasant the, the producer for the working theater um and direct rob ackerman's crazy play about dropping gumballs on luke wilson and uh uh, when all when even after many many productions that all of I mean all of which went great, uh, frankly, uh, I still have people going oh, oh no you must not direct your own work and I think no catch catch up everybody catch up because I I'm obviously not the only person doing this now and I think it's a really exciting uh, I think it's exciting when uh, people do it not just me anybody. Uh, yeah. And there are, you know, there are a lot of very celebrated international writer slash directors who it, it's mystifying to me, like where, you know, somebody said to me, well, that's an auteur. And I'm like, OK, I don't know what you would call this, um, but uh, it's curious that the prejudice is still hanging out there and uh, I, it's unclear when it started. But that it is not the it's not the timeless truth that people make it out to be. When do you feel like when you look back, I think everyone goes, I mean, maybe it's a series of lucky breaks, but when I read really like a, a thumbnail sketch of your resume oh. and and sort of all, you know, I could have read just as many television shows and films. Films has been a place where you really are taking full ownership. You're writing and directing and, and working with people like Angelica Houston, who were more than happy to be with a writer-director of yeah. the same project. Yeah. When do you feel 
Like I can really pinpoint Michael Greif hiring me to do Machinal at Naked Angels was huge for me in terms of my whole community. Okay, um, but wait, I have to ask a question. Aren't you yeah. a Naked Angel? Aren't yes, you? but I wasn't okay. until that play. So oh. Naked Angels started, you know, historically there's there's a bunch of people who came together, but many of them had gone to NYU together. Yeah, oh, believe me. I was as you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I came in because I had done uh, Cloud Nine at the non union theater of the Berkshire Theater Festival that summer. Michael Greif and RJ Cutler, who has gone on to do great things in the documentary and TV world, were the directors. Um, and Michael and I became fast friends. And he was coming back to New York to do a play at the Equity Library Theater. Uh, that Jody Markell had asked him to do ELT closed in between yeah. our summer and the time of that production. She was a member of Naked Angels. Yes. And so she went to Naked Angels and said, can we do it here? Christine Nielsen originally was cast in my part because of the delay in, in oh. the timing now. She couldn't do it, which opened up the part for me. And within you know a few months, I had you know, really become a part of that family of people, luckily. And now that's, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. So I know because of Michael, my New York theater family was sort of born and so many jobs came out of that. Yeah. When you, so, so when you look back at your beginning, you know, you just mentioned a handful of incredible artistic directors and directors who, believed in you yeah. what, what was your breakthrough um you know it would have to be spike heels which was which actually coincidentally michael directed um and it was being done at uh second stage in that tiny little postage stamp theater i love that place um and, and uh we we just ended up with a really dazzling cast and uh you know Kevin Bacon and Tony Goldwyn, and that's where I met Julie White and uh, Sandra Santiago. All they were all just great, and it was really we were kids. You didn't feel like that then, but it was a got a lot of attention. Uh, the critics snarled because it was a was a comedy about sexual harassment, uh, and and then like they were like. I don't know. It was my first my first uh, encounter with the blow the feminist blowback. You know, like she's a feminist, and I thought, and what? You know, uh, and that was a long time ago. That was like ninety two. And then four months later, Frank Rich wrote uh, a review of Oleana that said the the David Mamet play that said finally someone's written a play about sexual harassment. And I thought that my that was my first experience with. Yeah, somebody already wrote a play about sexual, and it was a woman, and it was four months ago. What are you talking about? But that goes on all the time. Obviously, we know that now. But uh, but even though there was like anxiety, let's just call it anxiety around that production, it went on and it's been done all over the world. And you know, the generations of actors are still doing scenes from it. So, you know, I had no idea what that would end up meaning because it felt like it was like this crazy uh ride into celebrity with you know these shiny actors and stuff and then just crash and burn around 
the critics just didn't get it. You know, they just didn't get it. But then it just, the ride kept going, you know, and you don't know, you don't know, you know, you put things out there, you don't know what's going to happen. Can we talk about uh, the the really hard part of being a, a, a person who puts themselves out there, which is getting reviewed? So you have been doing this a really long time. You've had glorious reviews. You've had reviews that you've just described this way. Right, like what? Right, yeah. right. Um, at this point, I've really been able to to say I don't read them and actually not read them, yeah. which took a long time. For it did take a long time. It takes a long time. Yes. But I, how do you handle the feelings around that? Um. Uh, I do a couple of things. Sometimes I leave town, you know, like with Dig, I was really scared. Uh, and so I went out and stayed a couple of days with a friend of mine on Long Island. And, uh, you know, we kind of relaxed into like, you just are continuing with your life and stuff. And then it's just, it's a lot of information coming at you very quickly on the right at, when the play is finished, you know, like when you're, when you're working in, film or TV or uh, fiction, there's all sorts of mitigating facts. Like, and when you write a novel, it doesn't get reviewed till like 18 months after you've written it because it has this long editorial process it has to go through. And in television and film, there's, again, there's a long process and you have so many co-conspirators, you know, right. you have so many collaborators, you're not in it alone. In the theater, it's sort of like right when you open and, you know, and it seems very immediate. And also, um, I don't, you know, it's a theater is something that obviously is meant to be shared with large numbers of people. And so to reduce the judgment on it, on a whole, a whole event like that to one or two very few people, um, you know, who's, it that's unwise it seems to me it's just not a good model um and uh i think that we're moving into other models but for so many years i think that a lot of anxiety clustered around that one review in the new york times and then the entire community was kind of in this sickness around it not just you, you know and that actually over time became my actual issue is that i'm like I can take care of myself, but I cannot take care of everyone else's anxiety. You know, like the entire community gets anxious and let's talk right. about how crazy right. it seems. And then you've got actors and I don't, and, uh, and even just people who love the theater and saw the show and loved it and don't understand like, why are they, why do they write about it like that? You know, asking for me, that's what became the real problem and still is a problem. That's yeah, why. 100%. I just want to go back. How did you fall in love with reading, with theater, that it has sustained you? Something about it has really sustained you with all the hardships around a career, any career, mm -hmm. all this time. Like It still feeds you in some really powerful way. That's That's accurate. Uh, and it, it's, uh, I, I finally have to say, I think the highs are bigger than the lows. Like I am a Tony voter. And so I go see a lot of theater and some seasons you just, it, uh, there's, there's just nothing that 
pulls me in or that, you know, that I get. Sometimes I feel like I just don't get this. Um, and then it's terrible. And, and then, then like this year, there were several things that I just thought were splendid. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Just like, my God, you know, that feeling of wasn't that great. And uh, I, I love that a lot. You know, I, I feel, and I really feel that the, that arts uh, build a stronger soul um, and that, you know, it's like they console you, you know, uh, or make you laugh. I think I wish more people uh, were into the arts than are into football. I think that's a, that's something that makes me look at our culture and say, you know, something's off here. Um, well, that would just take Taylor Swift doing one play. Taylor Swift. She's, <laughs> she's so great. I, but, I, you know, I think, I don't know how she's doing it. I keep watching it thinking, how is she doing that? Um, and I, I love how she's, she's created community. I mean, I think that for me is really what the arts do and what I, I dream, I think we all, we all need to do is connect, create community. Yeah. Uh, and that is our, that is what holds us on the earth. And accessibility, and, yeah. right? Like yes, how do you create yes. accessibility? Did you have that growing up? Is that where you found the, how did you find the theater? Um, uh, student matinees at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Uh, I, you know, you got to, for five bucks and a permission slip, they put you on a bus and took you down there to Cincinnati. And that's where I started. I mean, I think the first play I saw was, you know, Tartuffe. Uh, or yeah, I mean, really, they were doing great stuff. That was when my, the great Michael uh, Mayer, not Michael Mayer, whatever, cut this part out. I knew the artistic director and he did a great time, a great job with that. And uh, we just show up and see the classics and it was fantastic three times a year. And was that uh, part of you, the fabric of your household where you grew up? No, oh no. No, no. I mean, ultimately, uh, my some of them, I have five brothers and sisters, and some of us were acting in theater. At, you know, as we uh, made it through high school, um, but I was the one who did it more than anybody else. And they, I don't know, I don't know, but they all certainly all thought I was bananas when I said I was going to be a playwright. There, there was no container for that, and it was really seen as pure madness. And I'm not when saying wrong. Right. <laughs> when I say to you, like, on a list for the Pulitzer, the most produced female playwright on Broadway in America, um, sort of one of the people that anyone coming up in the arts wants to be like, emulate, how do you feel at this point about all of that how do, do you oh. can you celebrate that can you take that in um it's it's hard i have to say that is hard because it has been it's been really hard at you know when you ask about um you know taking your knocks i i've i've had plenty and um they don't they don't all go away you know, like there are some, in some ways, I'm like Frodo Baggins, I have a wound in my shoulder, it's just never going to go anywhere. And I regret that. 
uh, but it's part of life, I think. Uh, and but because of the wound in my shoulder, I often think maybe I should have been a doctor. Like my other dream was to be a doctor without borders, and just so there is a kind of feeling of I wish because I'm you think about your life at different stages. So I'm thinking about what I would I tell myself, my younger self, to go to med school because this other this other path was out there. I still think about that because sometimes I wonder it, but you know, people love the theater, you know, but it's, you know, it's like you go, it's, it's joyful. It's entertainment. We need it. Uh, but every now and then I worry that maybe I should have done something a little more practical. <laughs> I'm going to be so corny, but art really does heal. And I really feel like you're to have someone writing as much as you write with the empathy, humor, curiosity, and huh. deep, deep intellectual prowess that you have, that your brain is being used <laughs> and reused and recycled and redirected in every possible area of the human experience. And then we get to go into a theater and they generally turn the house lights out on us and keep the lights up really bright on the stage. Yet we are all in community at that moment, having a shared experience that moves us and makes us think and sends us back into the world trying to do better. I think you have served us. You have served your community. You have served your readers, your watchers, your listeners. The fact that you also get to do this for the screen, which reaches so many more people still in the world with yeah. your ideas, um, always with really powerful women at the center, always with underdogs getting their way, always without judgment, no matter what kind of behavior may be present in your characters. There's always um, the understanding of what makes them human. I think it makes you truly one of the most remarkable, remarkable writers of our generation. So thank you for all of that. Thank and. You. Thank you, Alana. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Here's to the future. Congratulations yeah. on I Need That. Everybody go see it for as long as it's on Broadway, and then it'll be at a theater near you, I am sure. And Teresa, thank you. I have to ask you one question before I let you go, because it's called Little Known Facts. Is there, you've shared a lot already. Do you have a little known fact about you that you can share? Uh, I, I have an Arrowhead collection. Does that count? I have a really Done. big, I love them. I'm a sucker for a, they're real. They're real artifacts. I, have really I mean, are you on eBay looking for them? Or are you? You know, I haven't tried that yet. I generally, uh, I, I have some from my childhood when oh, wow. we used to go visit my dad's, the farm he grew up on um, in upstate Ohio. And uh, while they were talking in the kitchen, we'd go down the hill and look for arrowheads. And so I have some from then. And I had just as my husband's parents also uh, grew up on farms in the Midwest, old farms. And uh, so they have some, I got some from his mom. I was like, get your mom to give me some airheads. And, uh, and then there was one year when I was in Indiana at the New Harmony Project. And I went into one of those really dusty old antique stores and some local guy was selling his arrowhead collection from his far you know so it's mostly they're mostly midwestern uh but they're 
they they bring me some such pleasure they're they're from a different time you know so they're like talisman for you yeah. and okay well and, and if you why just settle for one if you could have 20. yeah right. i hope you'll invite me over to see your arrowhead, arrowhead. collection i'd really like to see them <laughs> all right if you will please give your husband all of my love. He taught me what it means to be a stage manager and what a good stage manager is and how that sets the tone for the room in more ways than the director when you really think about it. And he was just a prince among men, uh, that entire production and just remains someone in my memory as just being just an angel person. So I'll tell him, I will tell, tell him. him that. And I can't wait. All right. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for being on the show. For everything, really. Of course. All right. Bye. 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 I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what it's called? Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure, but if you want to, no donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening, but if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day.